Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Nice. Welcome. Welcome to River Glen. For those of you here in Waukesha, those of you joining us in Pewaukee, hey, how are you guys doing? And those of you online, we are so glad that you're here. If we've never met, my name is Don. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I want to let you know that we are a church that's a come-as-you-are kind of church. Our doors swing wide open to welcome you no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. But I want to tell you, today is a special day. I'm glad that you came today as we kick off this new series called Prodigal, where we're going to look at what Charles Dickens called the greatest story ever told. Well, to get started, I want to ask you guys a question, a show of hands. How many of you have ever as a child threatened or actually attempted to run away? Well, much better. You guys are a lot worse of children than the rest of the other services. Hey, I got to be transparent. I got four kids and all of them had made that threat or attempted it before. They all wanted to run away to their Aunt Sauce's house. That's what they call her. Do you ever have one of those aunts that everybody, those kids always say, she's my real mom. I wish she was my real mom. I'm going to go live with her. Well, that happened all four times with our kids. Our oldest, he said he was going to run away. We got nervous. We pulled him in. We thought, what do we do as parents? We told him about the perils of running away, even as a little kid. But by the second child, when they made that attempt, we we let her go, but we kind of walked behind her and just kept saying, hey, we're here, and and we were a little nervous. By the third child, it happened in winter, and so we looked out the window, but we knew she was okay because we could see the tire tracks from her little suitcase, so we knew that we could find her. But by the fourth child, we packed her bags, we drove her to Aunt Sasa. She still lives with her aunt today. (laughs) I'm kidding, Emma, we love you, but... I got to tell you, we weren't buying it by the fourth time. Maybe your childhood runaway story looked a little bit like this. Check it out. Now, when David's daughter said she was going to run away, she was not messing around. Have a look. Yeah, baby. Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? Like Bam Bam from the Flintstones running away there. Kelly means business. Look at that. Pack the suitcase. Got Dino on top of the car, Al. Ready to roll. Wow. Thankfully, her dad eventually was able to charm (laughs) young Kelly back to the house. Wow, that girl was ready, wasn't she? I think we all have our running stories, and I only wish that we outgrew them when we become adults. But the truth is there's just something that's inside of us that likes to run. Run away from our restrictions, from the things that are holding us back, the things that we truly think will make us happy. As I mentioned earlier, we're kicking off a new series about a story, a parable that's found in Luke 15. The header of this story in your Bible would call it the lost son, or in some Bibles it might be listed as the prodigal son. And by reading this title, you would think the story is about a lost son, just one. But the truth is it's a story about two sons. Matter of fact, when Jesus starts off the story in verse 11, he says, there was a man who had not one, but had two sons. And I think as we continue through this series, you're going to come to find that there were two sons that were lost. They were very, very lost. But I'm jumping ahead. In the next three weeks, we're going to look at all the characters in this story. Today, we're going to look at the younger son. Next week, we'll look at the father. And the last week, we'll look at the older brother. And I want to encourage you to be here each week. Don't miss a week because whether you've heard this story for the first time or the 50th time, I really believe that God has something powerful to say to each and every one of you. 
So let's start in Luke chapter 15. To understand the context, I think it's important for us to know why he told this story to begin with. So let's look in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. You ever notice throughout the Bible, every time Jesus stopped somewhere, there was this huge crowd that would gather around him. Matter of fact, this word gathering in the Greek, it's a verb that means it's a continuous thing. This isn't something that just happened once. Crowds game around Jesus all the time. And here's the thing. Jesus looked for those opportunities to connect with the worst of the worst. You see, those crowds were filled with tax collectors and sinners. And those people that followed him, they wanted to be where he was. They wanted to hear what he had to say. The most perfect person in history was somehow able to connect with the people that were far from God, the people that had the least in common with him. For me, when, when I look at this, it, it's somewhat convicting for me. I'm, I'm far from a perfect person, but as a follower of Christ, is, is this who I'm attracting? Do they want to be around me? And as a pastor, I have to ask, do they want to be around our church? Am I, are we creating that kind of environment? Because, friends, that's the environment that Jesus created throughout the Bible. And i got to be honest with you, as a Christian, I have some work to do in this area when it comes to attracting people who need Jesus. And it's tough because many people have these preconceived uh, notions about what a Christian is and how they'll treat him. And, and that's generally based on how Christians have or how the church has treated them in the past. I'll give you an example of this in, in my own life. A few years back, my wife and I were asked to go curling. Um, I know that it's not just an Olympic sport. People actually do go and curl. But listen, we, we thought about it. We kept saying no. And eventually we said yes because we thought this would be a great opportunity for us to get out of the house and maybe get around some unchurched people and get to meet some, some new people. And maybe that would even lead to an opportunity to invite them to River Glen and maybe even to hear about Jesus. So we started curling each week, and each week you get a new couple to uh, curl with, and with all sports, things get kind of competitive. I, I know it does with me. So when a bad shot was made or the other team made a draw that, that knocked out your stones, see, I do know curling, people would get a little creative with their language, let's just say. And sometimes you'd hear them express themselves in that way, but never loud. There's no yelling on the ice. The only person who can yell on the ice is a skip. And what can he yell? Anybody know? They say sweep, and they yell out. Well, anyways, at some point in the, in the match, somebody would ask me, so what do you do, Don? Where do you work? And I hate that question. I know where this is going to lead every time. And I would say, I work at River Glen, and I'm a pastor there. And they would look at me, and they would go, oh, wow, that's great. And I could tell they felt so uncomfortable. So then every time that they made a mistake in the future and they let one slip, guess what they would do? They'd go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And the wife is shooting daggers at her husband. So the next time I missed a shot, I just let out an F-bomb to kind of let him off the hook. <laughs> I'm kidding. That very rarely happens. But seriously, how do we change that kind of situation where people are worrying about what they might say or think when they're around a follower of Jesus? Because I can't picture Jesus saying, watch your language. Don't do that around me. He invited people as they were in the moment. Jesus wanted people far from God to feel comfortable around him, and that's what he's modeled for all of us. And that's why I need you to know that here at River Glen, we don't always make decisions through the lens of what might make Christians happy. We can't. 
We can't reach a lost world. We can't reach a community if we don't feel comfortable, if they don't feel comfortable coming into our church, a safe environment where they have an opportunity to hear about Jesus. We can't say on our sign down there that says, come as you are, if we really don't mean come just as you are. It can't just be a slogan in our church. You know, God did not cuddle or, or call us to huddle each week to be a country club for Christians. Instead, he called us to be a hospital for sinners. So we know that some of these decisions we make might make some Christians mad. But that's okay. It did in Jesus' time as well. In Luke chapter 15, verse 2, it says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. I love that they said muttered. I actually had to look it up in the dictionary. Not because I didn't know what it meant, but it's not a word we use often. It means that they whispered. They talked under their breath. When we do that, we usually do it because we know that what we have to say might hurt somebody or it could be damaging to them. We know it's wrong when we're doing it, so we always kind of do it in private and we try to gain support. I don't like Jesus' message this week. Who are the people that he brought around us? Really? Is that what they're wearing? Don't they know this is a church? But not Jesus. Jesus ate with him over and over again throughout the Bible. And when he talks about eating with them, they would spend hours together in that time period when they ate with somebody. It meant that it said, I like you. I want to be around you. I accept you. And when the religious leaders saw that, it made them just furious. So when Jesus saw the response, he shared three stories about lost things in this chapter to show their importance and to kind of really get up in the grill of these religious leaders. And, and the greatest of these stories of these parables was the parable of the two lost sons. So I just want to read this quickly to you so that maybe you hear this in a fresh way. If you have a Bible today, open up to Luke chapter 15. It says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have... Sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, in the field, his older brother's out there. His older brother has stayed behind. He's taking care of everything, and he hears this party going on. And so he asked one of the servants, what's happening? And they said, didn't you hear your son? I mean, your, your brother has returned. After all that stuff he had done, and the son is just furious that they're throwing a party for him. So the dad comes out into the field to talk to the son, and the son's upset. And he's just saying, listen, look at all the stuff that he did. He spent all of your money, and he spent it on prostitutes. 
And yet you give him the fattened calf. And yet when I want my friends to come over to celebrate, you don't even give me a goat. And the father tries to tell him how much he loves him. And that's where the story ends. It doesn't really tell you much more about the older brother in there. And we're going to talk more about him in week three. But today I want to focus on the younger son. I want to look at how many in how many ways that we're a little bit like this lost younger son. The first way is we've all run from God and done something scandalous in our lives. I have and you have. If we look at the beginning of the story right away, we see the younger son asked for his share of the estate. It says there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. When we look at this through the American lens, we think, come on, what's, it's not that big of a deal. He just wants a little bit of his inheritance up front. But to look at this through the lens of Jesus in the first century, this was just completely, literally unheard of. In that culture, when a father was on his deathbed, he would divide all of his belongings among his sons. So to ask for this up front was like saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I want what's coming to me right now. And for a son to do this to his father would have made that audience just gasp because you just wouldn't do it. Kenneth Bailey, an expert in Middle Eastern cultural said, uh, culture, said this, In all of Middle Eastern literature, aside from this parable, from ancient times to present, there is no case of any son, older or younger, asking for his inheritance from the father who's still in good health. Matter of fact, Kenneth Bailey had spent 40 years in the Middle East, and he said, I've traveled the Middle East from Morocco to India, from Turkey to Sudan. I've been walking into villages and asking the same question all these years to thousands of people. And here's what I asked. Has anyone ever made such a request to have their inheritance while their father is alive? And every village I went into, they said this had never happened. So Bailey asked, could anyone even make such a request? They said it's impossible. The father would have beat him and the entire community would have disowned him because it would have meant that their father was dead. This got me thinking, how many times have we wished that God was dead? I know what you're thinking. Even if you're not a believer of Christ, you're, you're thinking, man, I've, there's never a time that I wish God was dead. But the truth is, anytime we say, you have no say over my life, you have no say over my, my finances, over my time, over my morality, stay away in this one area. When we start to believe that the Bible's outdated because it doesn't really fit with the lifestyle that we want right now, what we want to do in our lives, friends were saying the same thing to God, who's our father. And unfortunately, this is where many of us find ourselves today. We're running and we've just kind of shut God out. And this is where we found the son. He's run, he's run off to a distant land where he can have no rules, no restrictions. He can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants. And he is chasing happiness. And maybe for you, it's not a distant land. For you, it's running through an addiction or a flirtation that has led you or is leading you away from your marriage vows. It could be your past. It could be the shame of a decision that you made. Maybe for some of you, it's just you, you've become indifferent about church. It's no longer a priority. You're not really involved. You're not serving. You're not contributing. You're just kind of doing your own thing, and you're running. Here's the second way that I think that we're a lot like the lost son. We run because we think God is restricting us. We think he's keeping us from fun, from freedom, from that happy life. And this running, it feels good in the moment, doesn't it? until it doesn't. 
Listen, sin can be fun in the moment. Let's not lie to ourselves. But eventually, we have to deal with the consequences. And when we live our life doing our own thing and what feels good in the moment, chasing what we think will make us happy, it will gradually and slowly lead you down a path that you'll believe that you've never been down before and you never thought you would be there. Haven't we all experienced this at some point in our life? And at some point, that's where some of you are today. You just wanted less restrictions. You you wanted less advice. You wanted to kind of just do your own thing. And one step led to another, and now you found yourself far from God. And when we run, we find ourselves like the lost son. But here's what you need to know about God when we run. When you run, God will not always stop you. I need to repeat that. When you run, God will not always stop you. God will let you run. Why? Because he loves you. Because you can't have love without the freedom to accept or reject him. Think about it. In any loving relationship, you can't hold on to somebody. You can't lock, up, lock them up. You have to give them the freedom to choose. The power of love is the ability to accept or reject. And God loves you so much, he wants a relationship with you. But that requires you to choose, to seek God. But if you choose not to and you choose to run, guess what? God is going to let you run. Here's the other thing. God doesn't always shield you from the pain of your choices. The truth is many of us are in the situation right now because of our choices and we're dealing with the pain of those choices. And God will let you run and run until you just exhaust yourself. It's like being on a treadmill. You keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and you keep getting the same results and it's becoming exhausting. And it's time to recognize this and turn back to God and say, God, I'm tired of doing it my way because I found myself inside of a pit. As someone who's, who's run a few times, probably a couple marathons in my life, I know that's easier said than done. Years ago, when our two older children were younger, we didn't always make church a priority. We were tired. The kids had plans. We had plans. We were great at making excuses. Then over time, what was just missing a week here and there turned into multiple weeks, which then turned into a few months collected together. And next thing you know, down the slippery slope, we found ourselves away for years. And during that time, our spiritual life was drifting. We were making poor choices that weren't honoring God. Our marriage was falling apart. And we found ourselves inside of a pit. We hit rock bottom. And before we looked, we looked around and we said, how, how did we get here? This was not our plan to be here. So we made the decision right then that we were turning back, but this time it would be different. God would be a priority in our life. The church serving him, connecting, contributing would be a priority as well. But we had to make that conscious choice to turn back to God. The prodigal son, he found himself in a pit. He lost everything. He's feeding pigs, which for Jewish people, this was the worst of the worst job. So if he found himself in that position, why didn't he immediately just go back home? And why does it take us so long to go back home as well? Well, for some of you, maybe you think God's mad at you. You think of all the things that you've done and the shame that you have, and you wonder, maybe I've gone too far for God to accept me back. And when Jesus told this story, his audience would have immediately known why this son did not want to come home and why he feared coming home to his family. At the time, there was this Jewish law. It was called the Kizaza. And it was a law that was put into only two circumstances would they do this. 
One was if the son married a woman that had immoral character. The second reason was if the son left and took the inheritance and spent it on wild living. And that was even if the father was dead. The father was dead. He still couldn't go spend his money in that way. And what they would do if he came back, if he ever tried to come back, they'd perform this ceremony called the Gizaza, and they would take this big pot and they would fill it with burnt corn, burnt nuts, fruit, anything that they could find that was putrid. And they would all gather around the sun in the community with their pots. And one by one, they would break them at the sun's feet and they would smash it and they would say, you are no longer welcome here. You are cut off forever. That smell would permeate around the sun and this ceremony was meant to shame him and to humiliate him. And for them in that culture, it was a punishment that was worse than death. And this is why the father ran to him. When the son returned, it said, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. You see, he had to get there before the community got there before the villagers got there because they were ready to cut him off. They were ready to humiliate him and they were willing to step up and protect the father's dignity. But the father, his love for his son was so great, he took on the shame. He took on the humiliation that should have been cast on his prodigal boy. You see, it was even against the law for a a father to take his son back in that situation. But the father doesn't care. He doesn't stop. While he's still there in the city square, it says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now found. So they began to celebrate. This, like I said, this doesn't happen uh, at the house. It happens out in the community. And what you need to know about this is that a servant doesn't wear sandals. A robe was meant for royalty. That ring that he put on his finger, that was a family ring, a signet ring, and they would use that to sign contracts or to pay for things. So this was the father saying and making a statement saying, this is my son. I love him. He is a 100% welcome back. Maybe you're here today and you feel that God has a pot, a vase, with your name on it, and your shame has kept you from coming home. If you're running, listen, God does not see you as broken. He sees you as loved. You're his child, and you need to know you'll never overcome what you're dealing with until you come back to his love. I want to read a story to you that summarizes exactly who God is and what he thinks about you. It's a story by Philip Yancey in a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she rages inside, I hate you. She screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she's rehearsed a thousand times. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report shocking detail, the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that's the last place her parents will look for her. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, and arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. 
She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, and a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss. He teaches her a few things. She's underage. Men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about her family, but their life seems so boring, and she can't hardly believe that she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair with the makeup and the body piercing. Nobody would mistake her for a child. After a year, the first signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. Before she knows it, she turns out she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't really pay much. All the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping's the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can really never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes, her cough worsens. One night as she lays awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry and she needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight and underneath her and shivers under the newspapers that she's piled on top of her coat. Something jolts and a memory fills her mind, a single image of being back home in May when a million cherry trees bloom at once. And she says, God, why did I leave? And the pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to come home. Three straight phone calls, twice she hangs up, the third time she leaves a message. Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and they miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited maybe another day or two until she could have talked to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead a long time ago. She should have given them some time to maybe overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over again, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. When the bus finally rolls into the stations, its air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone. 15 minutes, folks. It's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, pats down her hair. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of those thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees next. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. They're all wearing goofy hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that says, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes. And she begins a memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. But he interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. 
You're going to be late for a party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. You see, the story of the lost younger brother is really a story of a homecoming. And if you're here today and you've been running, I hope you know that God will not only take you back, he will take you all the way back and he will give you a life that you've never dreamed of. But here's the thing is it needs to include him. He's waiting today like a father with his arms wide open. Will today be the day that you come home? Let's pray. Father, I want to lift up those in the room who've been running and have found themselves in a place they never thought they would be. Would you just help, to help them get to know that there's no shame in coming back to you? There's no judgment. Instead, they'll feel the over, overwhelming love of their father. For others, maybe you've never experienced a relationship with Jesus. God, will you speak to them? Will you open their hearts and give them the courage to make a decision to follow you and to get baptized? Lastly, some of us are followers of your son, but we've kind of fallen into this rut. We've come, become complacent in how we serve you and, and how, the law, how, we, how we've treated the lost. We've lost that passion. Please, Father, give us a heart for the lost and help us bring them back home. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.